0: Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, how would you uh, describe or identify a turning point in your life? Uh, I suspect that many of us could identify several different turning points. uh, The day that you met the person that you would marry, uh, you didn't know that you were going to marry the person, but she showed up on the wrong night for a campus crusade meeting at Miami University, and you were a transfer student, and you invited her to drive around campus with you, and for some reason she got in your car and drove around and violated all of the principles which her parents had taught her for uh, responsible dating in college. That would be a turning point. or. Uh, uh, maybe a turning point would be settling on a, vo- a vocation, uh, perhaps after trying several different vocations out. Uh, even our youngest listeners, you know, our fifth graders who might be here this morning uh, would have, yeah, there's a fifth grader out there. I see that hand. There you, there you are. Um, you know, that's the first time anyone's ever raised their hand in a sermon <laughs> that I've ever preached before. I'm having a, a moment. Thank you. Uh, if you are a, a fifth grader, you might have some turning points too. Maybe your family has moved to Dublin and you have started a new school. You know what it's like to come to a pivotal moment in your life. Jesus comes to such a turning point in John chapter 12 and in verse 20 to 36. He and his disciples uh, are in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, they are uh, just through the events of the triumphal entry Palm Sunday Uh, which we'll actually commemorate next week. We're a bit out of sequence. Uh, That event has just happened. Jesus is at peak popularity at this point in his life. Uh, For all kinds of motivations and reasons, a lot of people think he is the guy, uh, but what kind of guy he is is up for grabs. Uh, But people are interested in Jesus and what is happening, and there are some people, Greeks we read, who are in the city to celebrate Passover. They want to meet and they want to interview Jesus. And John describes the encounter. So I'm going to read it. I invite you to listen uh, to uh, this passage. Listen for the turning point and think about this question. Uh, how can this turning point in Jesus' life become a turning point in your life? How can this turning point in Jesus' ministry lead you to a turning point, perhaps even today. Hear God's word, beginning in verse 20 of John 12. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Did you catch Jesus' description, his experience of the turning point? Greeks come, they want to interview Jesus. Uh, these would be, uh, of course, non-Jewish men and women who have accepted the faith of Israel and are now in Uh, Jerusalem for this pivotal feast, and they are caught up in the interest about Jesus. And so they ask Philip if Philip can make an introduction uh, to Jesus for them. And this is interesting, it's curious, Philip is a Greek name, uh, but Philip, this Philip, is a Jewish man. So it's possible that the Greeks think that uh, there is some kind of uh, story about why Philip has this Greek name that maybe he can be an advocate for them to come and to talk to Jesus. Philip passes on the word to Andrew. They take the request to Jesus, and there's no word on whether actually Jesus talks to the Greek. That's not recorded for us. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. Uh, But whether he does or doesn't, Jesus views their coming to seek him as a turning point in his ministry. That there is something about their arrival. There is something about their wanting to talk to him, to ask him questions, uh, which makes Jesus say that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour has come. And if we had time to look at John's gospel at length, which we did several years ago, uh, we would see that in John's gospel, this time, this hour for John has always been on the horizon. That uh, Jesus has always described it from the earliest chapters as a future coming moment. Uh, You might remember in John 2 at the wedding in Cana when the wine runs out, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, comes and says, hey, the wine has won- uh, run out, and she expects him to do something about it. And Jesus replies that his time had not yet come. It wasn't his time yet to be glorified. And uh, in John 7, we read this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, you have to see that uh, if you think you have sibling problems, uh, Jesus is having a sibling problem here in this moment because his brothers don't believe in him. The Jews of Judea, the leadership are seeking to kill him. They say, why don't you go up to where the people who are trying to kill you are? You know, tense moment, Jesus answer, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And by the way, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're still thinking about Jesus and wondering uh, if the report could be true, I do think one question that you should ponder is what happens to Jesus's siblings? Well, what happens uh, between John 7 and the rest of the story where where these brothers who are so put out by Jesus that they want him to go to where he's going to be killed uh, actually then become leaders in the church in the rest of the story? Two of them become authors of New Testament books. One of them becomes one of the principal leaders of the church in Jerusalem. What happens to these half-brothers of Jesus that transforms them? That's a question that you deserve to think through. But now we're in John 12, and uh, these Greeks show up. They'd like to see Jesus. Jesus has said throughout the previous chapters, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. But now he says it's time. It's a turning point. His sermons have been preached. His miracles have been performed. He's gathered disciples. He's taught crowds He's entered Jerusalem triumphantly as a peace-bringing king. But now it's time for the single death. Like one grain of wheat that will lead to much new life. Well, how can this turning point in Jesus' life become a turning point in my life? Jesus offers a short explanation in his next words, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, he's using a figure of speech. He does not mean that the goal of his teaching is that people enter into some kind of self-loathing or some kind of uh, creation escaping or creation denigrating reality. God is love. We are made in his image People have incredible value and dignity. So he's not calling us to self-loathing. God created this world good with much to enjoy for his glory. So what does he mean? Well, what he means is simply this, that when you and I make ourselves, our agendas, our hopes, our dreams, the ultimate center and the ultimate priority of our existence, we will end up losing everything. It's simple math. You can't take it with you. No achievement at work, excellence as a parent, success as school has the capacity to deliver us from the inevitable decay of life or from the separation from God that marks human existence as a result of sin. But Jesus says positively, if we build our life around him, even when following him leads to challenge, uh, as it surely will, then we will keep our life in the world to come. That's what Jesus is saying, that his turning point, that now he must go to the cross, that, that now over the next days he will experience the extremity of rejection. And there will be moments where following him will look like absolute foolishness. Indeed, when those who have followed him most closely will walk away from him, where the crowd that has welcomed him in wonder and anticipation will turn on him in rejection and would rather the liberation of a political terrorist than the liberation of the Son of God. In those moments, Jesus says, whoever would lose his life For my sake, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus anticipates what this turning point will mean for him. He feels the weight of it in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is one of those moments where I I wish we could hear the tone of the text that we read. I I wish we could hear him say troubled uh, because troubled means more than uh, Mm -hmm. vexed or perturbed or stressed. Uh, One of the commentators pointed out, and I went back and and double-checked, that twice uh, elsewhere in this gospel, Jesus describes himself as troubled. First, when he sees his friend Mary weeping because her brother, his friend Lazarus, is dead, Jesus was troubled. The second time is when Jesus predicts that one of his disciples will betray him, he was troubled. This is an intense word. He contemplates the cross. He is troubled as if a friend has died, as if he's been betrayed by someone who he's traveled with for three years. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As Jesus contemplates the cross as he is in this pivotal moment, three lessons emerge to motivate us to follow Jesus through this turning point. And they are uh, uh, briefly a lesson about the Father's glory, about the Son's achievement, and about our opportunity. So first, uh, let Jesus explain to us uh, how the Father's glory is to be revealed. Now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And as we prepare for the events of Holy Week, Palm Sunday... Good Friday, Easter Sunday, I I want to encourage you to remember uh, that Jesus understands very clearly that the purpose of his ministry is to lead to his death and to his resurrection and to his ascension. Uh, That the drama of of Holy Week is painful, but it is purposeful. That, That the crowd that exalts will reject him that he will be betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends, that human rulers will appear to have their way with him. Soldiers will abuse him. Criminals will mock him. And all of it will unfold according to purpose. That, that, The basic message of Christianity is not a salvage message, a a, a message whereby, you know, we had a leader, and we thought he was great, and then some bad things happened to him, and so now we're trying to rescue the investment that we made in him. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that that all that is going to unfold over the next days in Jesus' life is plan A. It's unfolding according to purpose. And that is confirmed in this voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, this is a very tender moment, I think, in Scripture. Jesus resolves to the painful purpose ahead of him. His father confirms the purpose that the cross is ahead and glory is ahead. But the primary beneficiary of the voice from heaven is not actually Jesus. It's interesting uh, that the primary beneficiary of Jesus is you. The primary beneficiary is me. The primary beneficiary are the first generation of disciples so that uh, they will understand that what will unfold is intended to happen. So I, I repondered this exchange. What did the father mean when he told Jesus that he had already glorified his name? Well, from one perspective, if you were to look at a whole big Bible perspective, uh, so much tells of the father's glory, right? You know, we we read in the psalm, Psalm 19, for instance, the heavens declare the glory of God, that the beauty of creation declares the glory of God, from the splendor of the galaxies to the intricate detail of DNA, that God's creative glory is manifest everywhere. But I think that the Father is being more specific. It was helped to remember uh, of the instances in John's gospel where God's glory is made known, where you can read of, of God being glorified in the actions of Jesus, that God makes his glory known when Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. God makes his glory known when he gives new life to dead Lazarus. And now the Father will make his glory known in the Son's purposeful death and resurrection. But glory talk can sound abstract, right? Glory can sound a little bit like a vague word. Well, one pastor put it this way, uh, what Jesus wanted to do more and hold on to life itself, is to glorify the Father's name. What he wanted more than life was the Father's glory. More than life. The glory of God is his character, full of grace. And he is glorified when his character is revealed, end quote. Foundational demonstration and articulation of God's glory back in the Old Testament as Moses encounters and God comes and passes by him and announces the Lord, the Lord, but using his personal name, we might say Jehovah or Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All of this glory, the glory of God's mercy, of of mercy being the, the withholding of what is deserved, And the glory of God's grace, grace being the the giving of favor that isn't deserved, of the glory of steadfast love, which keeps promises, is faithful to covenants, faithful through the the litany of personal and corporate failures, of, of generations of rebellion of God's people. And at the same time, the glory of moral purity, That must somehow account for sin. All of this glory comes together at the cross. Making the cross not only one more instance of God glorifying his name, but the pinnacle moment where God glorifies his name mercy and grace and holiness and justice and judgment and forgiveness and accountability all coming together in one purposeful event. Do you not marvel at that? We ought not to move so quickly past it. I mean, we, we hear the story week by week and year by year. But Jesus, when he comes to this pivotal moment in his life, and and he's like, man, all that has happened in the previous three years has been leading up to this moment. And over the next week, everything is going to unfold to take me to the moment of the cross. What what is going to be revealed is glory. The Father is going to reveal his glory. Glory. What an, what an instructive lesson for God's people. What an instructive lesson for us because as we hunger for glory, as, as we wonder what glory would be like if we could encounter it, or if we think about what glory looks like in history, the pinnacle of glory looks like the cross. And that needs to reshape our expectations, reshape kind of our spiritual calculus if, our, if, if you will. Because there is something in what looks like massive failure that is essentially glorious. The Father is revealing the glory of mercy and grace and judgment and love all together in one place, in one person, dying so that many can have life. We need to think more about the son's achievement. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come uh, for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So it's interesting. You've got this whole group of people You've got this whole group of people uh, living through the same experience, but so they experience it differently. The crowd marvels at the voice. The disciples understand it. The lesson is for us. The cross is not a mistake. What seems chaotic in Jesus' life unfolds according to plan. And now that Jesus' time has come, he explains what will be achieved. First, he says that, that this is the moment of judgment on the world. Now, world has a nuanced meaning in John's gospel. Uh, It can mean the realm of our physical existence, the world. It can also represent the world order that is in rebellion against God. In the opening verses of John in chapter 1, we read that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the same world. Uh, that the Father loves so much that He sends His only Son to be the Savior of it. That that He is going to judge rebellion at the cross. <laughs> what a paradox! That, that 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 the conspiracy of the leadership uh, of the Gentile and the Jewish leadership, and the fickleness of the crowd, and and, and everything that looks like it leads Jesus to the cross. Is actually judged at the cross. Judgment on this world. Secondly, he says he's going to cast out the ruler of this world. He's going to drive out Satan. Cast out, throw away, expel. Jesus' death on the cross crushes Satan's power. By Christ's death, the power of death will be defeated. How exactly will this happen? It's worth a a moment of reflection. It's, It's commonplace to note, but again, we should not become over familiar with it, that Jesus' death becomes the death of death for all who will believe in him. And if Jesus' death becomes the death of death for all who will believe in him, then the power of death is diffused for believers. That death and forever distance from God need not be the final outcome of life. Once the fear of death is broken, Satan's power to bully is taken away. Uh, If you have had the sad experience in the past of of being bullied by someone, uh, you know that Once you take their worst shot and show that it doesn't have power, then their power to bully you is broken, right? If you stand up to the bully and if if you let the bully take a swing at you and then you absorb the hit and, and you think that's the worst you can do, then the power of the bully is taken away because the bully doesn't have anything more to throw at you. Well, if death is, is Satan's power to bully people in this regard, and if Jesus takes the hit, and if he absorbs the hit, and if he exhausts the power of death so that his death becomes the death of death for the church, then the, the, the power of death that the evil one might wield against us is broken. So that however the, the evil one might come, the, the ruler of the prince of the world, and say, oh, So you know, that you're going to die. Jesus' answer on our behalf is he's already dead. The power is broken. But not only is the power of death broken, so is the power of accusation. Because this is how Scripture reveals Satan, is he not? He is the accuser. He comes with accusations against us. If only you knew the worst about that person. If only you knew their darkest thoughts. If only you knew their uh, their unexpressed doubts. If only you knew their unbelief. And these uh, accusations are brought. And we think, well, what if he did know my darkest doubts? What if he knew my areas of unbelief? What if, what if he, he knew my sin? Jesus says, look, I, I, I know it. I accepted the judgment for it. I have exhausted the power of accusation. It's as if uh, Satan comes into the heavenly courtroom and he says, I would like to present to you all the charges that I could make against Dave. And Jesus says, look, I, I understand them. Those have already been presented, asked and answered, paid for. Move on. But, but, but if they've been asked and answered, then I, I don't have any power anymore. Exactly. No power anymore. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show By what kind of death he was going to die. All men will be drawn to Jesus, by which, of course, he means all manner of men, Jews and Greeks, the two kinds of basic social divisions in uh, the New Testament. And so we see why it becomes even more clear uh, why the arrival of the Greeks prompts Jesus' declaration that now is the time, because he's not only being sought by the Jews, pondered by the Jews, but now he's being sought by the Greeks, being pondered by the Greeks. And so for the next weeks, I invite you to consider that the son's achievement at the cross and resurrection accomplishes uh, what humanity has been trying to accomplish for millennia. It's interesting, isn't it, Uh, that for millennia, religions have been proposing myriad ways for us to become right with God, myriad ways for us to have real spiritual life. What Jesus accomplishes is not just better than other efforts, it's categorically different than other efforts. He doesn't just tell us a better way to sacrifice. He comes to be the better sacrifice. He judges as inadequate, not to say rebellious, worldly efforts, but he doesn't just end with judgment. He judges rebellion and then extends an invitation to come and believe. For millennia, we've been trying to understand or explain away the problem of evil. We try to curb evil with laws and policies. Uh, If we can't curb it, we try to contain it with superior firepower or complicated, imperfect judicial systems. Uh, Jesus doesn't curb or contain evil. He conquers the root source of evil. So it's not just that he does something better. He does something categorically different. You know, we, we've been as uh, people across the millennia on quest for human unity. From ancient alliances to empires seeking unity through domination, to Leagues of nations and United Nations. How have we done? Jesus achieves a different kind of unity not just a better unity, but a different kind of unity. He is going to spiritually unite every person, man, woman, child who believes in him. He's going to spiritually unite that person to him. He's going to make that person equally forgiven, equally accepted, equally adopted into his family, equally sure of the same equal future. So we're all over here with all our human quest for unity. Jesus says, let me solve that problem for you. By giving you better, this is what he achieves, which leads to our opportunity. How can this become a turning point in my life? Well, there is a clear invitation to the crowd in verse 34. And maybe this is the invitation that you need to hear. The crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? In other words, we have some religious thoughts about the Messiah, We've got some ideas about Jesus, which is what people do, right? Like we put ourselves over Jesus, like we get to describe Jesus to Jesus. This is the way, Jesus, I think you should be, Jesus. You can't put Jesus in a box. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going, while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. In other words, now is the time to believe. Take Jesus as he is, not as you think he needs to be, because what he achieves is better than what you can ask him to achieve. Take him as he is. Walk in the light. I would encourage you this morning Uh, if you have not followed after Jesus, that you should do that at the earliest possible moment. You should do that now. You should walk in the light as you have the light because neither you nor I uh, nor the wisest prognosticators know when he is coming back. So so today is always the day to believe in Jesus. Uh, Tomorrow is not the best day to believe in Jesus. Today is the best day to believe in Jesus. Walk in the light as you have the light, but I think there's another opportunity here, and it's uh, in the story of Philip. And this is the opportunity to go and to share. Now there are two Philips in the New Testament. Uh, there is Philip the Apostle, and there's Philip the Evangelist. And the Philip that we meet here is Philip the Apostle. Philip the Evangelist is the one that we read about in Acts. We know less about Philip the Apostle. But we know a couple of things. We know that this Philip is a Jewish man with a Greek name. And he's from an out-of-the-way town, Bethsaida. Bethsaida is in kind of the hinterlands socially of Israel at the time. And there is something about Philip that made him approachable to people. There's something about Philip that made him approachable to these Greeks. These Greeks had 12 disciples that they could have chosen from. They chose Philip. So I, I've been thinking about that for myself. I'm like, am I approachable to people who want to meet Jesus? That's a good diagnostic question for you. Are you approachable to people who want to meet Jesus? There are all kinds of reasons why we uh, become unapproachable. There are all kinds of reasons, I suppose, why I'm, I'm unapproachable. And those areas deserve our contemplation and our repentance But I've I've been reflecting further on Philip the Apostle because I think this turning point for Jesus became a turning point for him. Early church tradition, pretty pretty reliable, not perfect, but pretty reliable church tradition says that this Philip ultimately traveled to central Turkey uh, and he settled in a town called Hierapolis, which was a cult center for a pagan god Named Sibylle, and that he lived, uh, according to the tradition, into his 80s when then he was martyred. And could you go to that place in Turkey, uh, you would find a shrine to his tomb. Uh, and the, the shrine is less important than this story that Philip was approached by these people who were not Jewish, who wanted to see Jesus. And then apparently he spent the rest of his life trying to tell people just like these Greeks about Jesus. So there's an opportunity to come and walk after Jesus, and there's an opportunity to go and to share. There's an opportunity to follow Philip's lead, to, to, be go, to go and to be approachable. So, so my question to you as we wrap up is where are you going to go in the next week, the next two weeks, the next month, where you can go and be approachable? Go and be approachable at school. Go and be approachable at work. Go and be approachable with your church-going friends (laughs) because uh, you shouldn't necessarily assume that your church-going friends are walking in the light. Tell your church-going friends about the faith that you have in Jesus, Let Jesus' turning point in his ministry become a turning point in your life. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.